Welcome to another edition of the Reporter Roundtable. I'm your host, Patricio Robayo. And today I'm joined with Liam Mill from the River Reporter, Chris Rowley from the Schwankuk Journal, Derek Kurt from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pontuso from the Times Union. It's been a busy month, busy week. It's been busy in the news. So let's get straight to it. Liam from the River Reporter, let's start with you. You have a story on the Pennsylvania budget. It just seems like we just got over a uh, the budget season, but once again, another budget season is on its way. Pennsylvania is starting out, and uh, pretty soon uh, he talks about the New York budget again and also local budgets. So the budget is, as of this moment, overdue. Uh, the deadline for the Pennsylvania budget was June 30th, and it has been held up largely over a debate on a school voucher. So school vouchers are uh, taxpayer-funded scholarships uh, that can help send students to non-public schools like private, religious, or cyber schools. Uh, they're a program that sort of helps uh, parents look outside of the normal public school system. It's something Republicans are pretty strongly in favor of, and it's something Democrats pretty strongly oppose. And it's been a sticking point in this budget cycle, in part because of the Democratic owner, Josh Shapiro, who initially supported the program, sort of signing with Republicans in thinking that it's a good idea, and then has gone back on that now that uh, once he faced uh, opposition from uh, other Democrats. Uh, where things stand currently, uh, because Shapiro sort of flip-flopped on that, uh, the uh, democratically controlled House, or I think it's democratically controlled, was able to get through uh, its budget and was able to pass its budget. Um, but the Senate, which is Republican controlled, um, has left for the summer and shows no intention to return, um, especially without this uh, voucher program in place. Senate or the Senate Republicans um, have indicated that they feel sort of betrayed by Shapiro's decision here, that they were negotiating in good states to get this budget through. And then at the last minute, Shapiro sort of pulled his support for this budget, uh, this education voucher program, went back on a lot of the negotiations they had done leading up to this point. So that's kind of where the budget stands right now. It's through the House. Uh, the Senate is um, out for the summer, and it's unclear sort of what the next steps are. Um, to get that budget passed. Is there sort of a, a time limit when this budget has to be definitely in? Like, you know, New York had the uh, the debates for the budgets recently, and, you know, those it was held up for a while. Uh, does Pennsylvania have something similar to that? Do you know? I don't think there is a specific um, date. I am a little unfamiliar as to um, the complete fiscal effects of uh, the budget being limbo over in Pennsylvania. Um, as we saw sort of in New York, it's possible for a budget standoff to continue for quite a while um, without resolution. I think New York's lasted about a month this past cycle. So um, yeah, I'm, but I'm not sure what the timeline is going forward. Definitely keep us up to date on the latest uh, budget news for Pennsylvania. Let's turn our eye back here to Sullivan County. You have a story about some geese who were calling White Lake home. Um, some associations uh, tried to put some control on the geese that were there. Uh, what can you tell us uh, about these geese and what happened to them? 
this first starts with the organization called the White Lake Lake Owners Association. They um, are working to protect the lake and uh, preserve it from development. Uh, they're working with various state agencies to um, to study the lake and to uh, have better outcomes for the lake. And the, their most recent thing they embarked upon was partnering with the USDA to call the geese population in White Lake. It's estimated that they were rounded up and slaughtered between June 15 and July 4. Where this runs into a little bit of a sticking point is a lot of the other residents who aren't as closely involved with this owners association didn't really know what was happening. Um, there was a petition that went around that sort of had to authorize this action. Um, there's some reports that it wasn't as maybe as clear as it could have been. And a lot of residents are opposing this decision to uh, call the geese. And the town board didn't really know what was going on either. They're currently investigating through FOIL requests how it happened. They've told the USDA that uh, they don't, they shouldn't really have done that. Um, the Lake Owners Association is still sort of supporting the moves, uh, saying it's carefully considered uh, based on concerns about the lake health and the community health. But um, there is sort of that rift in the community right now between the people who are supporting that move and the people who are sort of against it. So, you know, I guess we're for this, for this to happen and then sort of shocked or surprised at uh, the way uh, it played out. Were they expecting a different outcome? Were they expecting like the USDA to sort of round up all the geese and rehome them? Uh, was that sort of the expected outcome for this? No, I believe the Lake Owners Association was like this was the their intended outcome. I haven't seen anything from them saying they didn't expect what was happening. I think there's just a disagreement between say maybe the Lake Owners Association and the Board about whether um, this was the appropriate geese management plan to take. Um, and again, the Lake Owners Association says they did the research. This was the correct way to go. Um, the town board sort of is advocating for a more uh, reasonable, like uh, restrained goose management plan rather than sort of going straight to the um, ultimate end. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Liam Mayo, from the River Reporter, for that. Let's turn our eye to Ulster County in Ellenville, where we have Chris Rowley from the Schwankunk Journal giving us an update on the fire at the once Borscht Bell Hotel at the Homewack. There was a devastating fire that ignited a couple of times uh, in one week, one week, and this is uh, sort of uh, a number of uh, fires that are happening this past season already of uh, the big one before this one was the Pines Hotel. Chris, what can you tell us about the Homewack? All right, so uh, Homewack, uh, everybody woke up uh, to Wednesday morning uh, from the fire that began on Tuesday night. Uh, brought in an enormous amount of mutual aid to bust the fire companies all across Sullivan County. They came to the Sullivan County side of the Homewack site, which is down there in Mamacating and uh, Spring Glen, Phillipsport. Anyway, uh, and then on the Ulster County side, uh, an awful lot of uh, pumpers and tankers came from, uh, oh, Lord, I think there, were, there was equipment from Platterkill uh, that came. It was, it was a widely distributed uh, mutual aid response. Um, it, the, the fire had a good grip on those ruins. Um, 
here at the Songum Journal, we we did a, a a number of pieces on the ruins of the Hummerwack back in 2009, 2010, when it was slipping out of the grip of a um, Satmar group at Hasidim uh, who were determined to uh, have kids in there, even though it was a ruin, and the roof was leaking, and so on and so on. And eventually they were prized out of there by the Department of Health. Um, and we went down and looked at it, and it was it, it was it was chilling. And it, there was actually black mold hanging in like threads, like stalactites, off of the ceiling in one of the lower level um, passageways. Um, anyway, so obviously it was it was wrecked, it was ruined. Uh, it went it went silent. Uh, they didn't pay taxes. It was sold at tax auction, and um, for a little while, this guy Lex Eslin with his beautiful Earth Group, they bought it, and he planned to do a lot of interesting things with it, like open it up to the community, bring back the swimming poles, repair the tennis courts, and so on and so on. Uh, none of that actually ever happened. So um, it went back into ruins again, just not, not, nothing much happening there. Uh, and then it was bought by a mysterious uh, individual and group, um, Hei Jun. Uh, or Jun Hei, I'm not quite sure which way that goes, um, who is um, headquartered in Federal Way out by Tacoma in Washington State. They're the owners. They're the current owners of the place. Um, but on Tuesday night, it's burned, and it really burned. Now, uh, the fire raged through the, the structure, um, and uh, when I got down there on the morning uh, following, um, there was still smoke. Uh, Summitville fire was still pumping water into the up smoldering ruins. And um, we heard that it actually reignited later that day, and there were more fire companies went down and poured more water on it. So, you know, that's, that's the second major fire in a ruined, abandoned um, Borscht Belt uh, hotel uh, in a month. We had the pines, now we got the, the armor whack. Um, so there's a degree of concern uh, in our washing in Ellenville regarding the Neverly, which is also sitting there, uh, abandoned, a derelict um, hotel. And it's even bigger, there's more buildings and, and an iconic tower and everything. So there's a lot of concern that uh, if this is arson, that they may strike there. Of course, the Neverly is in the process of being bought, and uh, there is a great plan to uh, create a luxury resort there. And I believe that the people who are buying it, um, some of us at Partners LLC, uh, are going to. I have actually put some guards down there too to protect it. I know they have a, a deal with Ellenville Police, but I don't know if that's effective yet. Anyway, it's the defiers are a wake up call to everybody. That um, these uh, uh, derelict uh, hotels can be the source of uh, a large, dangerous fire. Um, so that was that was early in the week. Yeah, it was quite a news week of with the, with the fires and, and I said the, the home wagon before that was the Pines Hotel. Uh, you have another story in the Schwankuk Journal about a potential serial killer. This is an interesting story. What can you tell us about what ha what's happening with this this case? The discovery of this gentleman, uh, Urenman, uh, Rex Urenman in Massapequa, uh, identified and arrested 
um, as the probable murderer of a number of young women uh, classed as escorts. Um, the four bodies, uh, he, he's been tagged with the first four bodies discovered uh, along Gilgo Beach. And um, pretty grim story. Um, it's just that thing of a predator taking uh, advantage of young women in, in, in a dangerous and very, very risky thing, kind of occupation. Um, and um, the Ellaville side of it is, of course, that right next to that beach is Oak Beach, where um, Ellaville native Shannon Gilbert disappeared um, uh, back in that, that time period as well. And uh, the Gilbert family, you know, they were they, they were um, commemorated in a sense, um, you know, movie called Lost Girls, which is pretty good actually. Uh, it's a pretty good film, um, but it, it 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 captures a working class mom with a a, a family of girls um, struggling with the disappearance of one of them. Um, and you know the complicated uh, aspects of that, such as uh, the girl sending money back to uh, the mother and her little family in Allenville um, from her escort work. Anyway, um, you know that 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 kind of grim and grisly business uh, that's become an, a, a global story, um, and that sort of shines a uncomfortable light on human. Interests, perhaps you know, what we get excited about tends to be grisly, or or else it's Margot Robbie in pink. You know, <laughs> <laughs> this type uh, of uh, uh, like story just seems perfect for like which normally we hear like in a, in a podcast or something like that with deals with serial killers and it's right in our own backyard. Yeah, and uh, this 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 gentleman um, who's been arrested, I'm sure, will be. I mean, the casting will be tricky, but and I, I, we don't even know actually if there will be any more movies, TV, or anything at this point right now. That maybe the whole industry is going to tank. But uh, if there is, um, I, I, I can't, I can't imagine a future that doesn't have the Gilgo Beach horror or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. And other news and a little lighter news: you have a festival coming up that celebrates the Borscht Belt. We've got the, we are we're approaching the opening of the Borscht Belt Museum in Elmoville. Um That will there's going to be a little festival July 29th. Um, I say little, it could be huge. And uh, the 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 big thing here is rather than rock bands, it's going to be comedians because this is commemorating the Borscht Belt. So a whole new bunch of stand-up uh, stars. Uh, are going to come. Um, a lot of those shows have unfortunately already sold out. So if you're airing this now, well, yep, there you go. But uh, the the festival will be running anyway. There will be other exhibits. There'll be all kinds of things to, to come and see. It will commemorate uh, a phenomenon that transformed this area from well, there were hotels and 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 and, and you know the, uh, and boarding houses before. Uh, they just wouldn't cater to Jewish people, but um, the, the the area was more of a um, dairy farming, truck farming area, uh, much more than it is now. In fact, dairy farming is 
pretty much gone uh, in, in the Rondale Valley. I mean, I can't, don't think we have one. No. I mean, you still have dairy farms in Sullivan County, but Ulster County, I think we're down to like four. Uh, and the transformation was accompanied by the, the sudden emergence of uh, dozens of large hotels and bungalow colonies. And some of them sprang up from um, local roots, like the, the Slutsky family uh, originated the Neville and then the Fallsview, which are outside Ellenville. And before that, they were farmers and they just jumped into a new business. Um, Grossinger's grew out of a, a delicatessen on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. Like, a delicatessen somewhat like Katz's. I don't know if you've ever been there, but you know, it, it's, it's worth going. Uh, you know, so varied businesses evolved or metamorphosed into these hotels. And for a while, in the 1950s, you had this annual summer migration of hundreds of thousands of primarily Jewish people from New York City, from its suburbs, from Long Island, from New Jersey, coming to Sullivan County, coming to Ulster County, to the hotels. And with them, which was, I find the most interesting aspect of all this, uh, came the comedians. And you name a comedian. I mean, at one point, I think Time Magazine noted that 80% of American comedians were Jewish, and they all made their bones at these hotels. That's where they learned how to read an audience, play to an audience, get an audience to laugh. And, you know, they, they, the, the, and from Buddy Hackett to Lenny Bruce to Woody Allen to John Rivers, I mean, it just goes on and on and on, the list of them. And, and uh, they changed the culture. That, that kind of humor, that sharp, acerbic wit of the Jewish stand-up comedian humor moved into the American mainstream. It wasn't there before. I mean, you, you listen. If, if, I don't know if you're familiar with, say, Bob Hope stand-up routine. It's not quite like that. It's nice. But it's, it's different. There are jokes. It's, there are moments. But it's not, it doesn't have that kind of sharp you know, drop dead kind of quality that you got with uh, Don Rickles, who was busy insulting Italian Americans. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's it was a different kind of thing, and that has penetrated uh, the culture and uh, continues. And one of the last of those stars was Jerry Seinfeld, who went on to have you know the show of the '90s, you know, or one of the shows of the '90s, you know. So, hey. Uh, it, it left a, a major cultural uh, in a footprint. How about that? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a good term. Uh, I mean, it's amazing that they're having comedians again. I'm seeing more and more uh, comedian comedy shows up here in Sullivan Catskills, and it's great they're coming back up here to the Catskills, where you know you can say the the birth of the modern day stand up uh, happened in the Borscht Belt, and it's great this festival is going to have comedians. Yeah, they're, they're, they're going to have some music as well, but, uh, but the comedians that are, are the central draw. And this, uh, this Friday, they're going to have a, an, ex, an exhibit of um, the art of Morris Katz, K-A-T, no, you, you say Z here, and I say Z, but no, anyway, Katz. Um, and um, uh, he is famous as the artist of Schlock. Uh, he produced more artwork in his life than... 
a dozen. I uh, know a hundred. Good. He was incredibly quick, a uh, uh, quick worker, and he produced a ton of stuff. So they're having a show at the Bush Belt Museum, which is in Allenville, at the corner of um, Canal Street and uh, Main Street, or Route 209. Um, and that will be on Friday. This that they're going to have a little opening, and and you know kick this show off. Oh, that's kind of like the first thing. It's a little taste of the Bush Belt Museum and what it's going to be offering. So that's the Bush Belt thing, the fire thing. Um, on the other side, there is a quickie, a quick thing to mention, which is good news. Um, Ellenville will war, uh, and Will Worsing have been uh, uh, negotiating, uh, maybe even fighting over um, what to do and how to refurbish the Burm Road Park which is heavily used by the uh, the kids of Ellenville um, and the, the basketball court, which is heavily used by the youths. And uh, they're, in, they're in poor shape at this point. They haven't had any investment in them in 20 years uh, or not much. And uh, But now Elster County has come through with um, 200 grand in um, grants, which should derive from ARPA money. And uh, it's the American Relation Program, which anybody doesn't know what ARPA is by this point. And um, uh, it just has to be matched. So uh, the town and the village will be matching the 100 grand they're going to get from the county with 75 grand each plus 25 grand in kind. And they have employees so they can do the in kind pretty easily. Uh, the village will have to go to a permissive referendum. Uh, to take some of the mountain money uh, for this because the village doesn't have 75 grand uh, sitting around. Uh, and um, that permissive referendum will be held in November, uh, coterminous with the this November's elections. That way they'll get a bigger turnout and they won't have to spend a fortune having a special election thing that won't draw very many people anyway, uh, you know, separate from those elections. The... Um, the, the 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 benefit will be that the uh, the the money will be used to create a nice new playground. The old wooden stuff will either be prepared if it can be or removed, and uh, they'll go to one of the many uh, companies that produces the nice brightly colored plastic stuff, plastic covered metal stuff uh, that you see in in every modern playground today. Uh, and that will be uh, an important thing, and that will take take away a kind of source of, uh, and bring the village and the town a little bit closer together. So good news. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, let's turn our eye to Sullivan County with Derek Kurt, the editor for the Sullivan County Democrat. Uh, Derek, we know that Chuck Schumer was here in Monticello, U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer was here in Monticello and told us that the, uh, Sullivan County is now in the Haida zone. So if you could talk more about what exactly that means for Sullivan County, that now we have this designation of being in the Haida zone. Yeah. So um, most people, you know, have probably heard about um, the high-intensity drug trafficking area um, situation that the county has been in um, for quite some time now. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a good month of July for uh, that particular uh, push uh as on the sixth uh u.s senator chuck schumer uh after many tries of many many years of pushing um was able to announce to uh Sullivan county at the lawrence h cook house in monticello that the county has indeed 
finally been approved for the HITDA designation. Um, that will that finally allows Sullivan County to join others uh, in the Hudson Valley, in New York, and in New Jersey um, as one of many who um, are putting, uh, you know, the brakes to the to the gears to slow down and reduce um, drug trafficking um, along in the Hudson Valley. Uh, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer was joined by a lot of Sullivan County local leaders, including um, the Sullivan County Sheriff Mike Schiff, uh, who um, was rejoicing uh, in us getting that designation, uh, as he had only previously, about a couple weeks prior to us receiving that acceptance, uh, put out a recall for the county to really try to dig in and and finally push this through to be able to have access to a number of federal tools and communications um, that just were not present uh, before this uh, acceptance. So it's a it's a rather big deal um, that allows the county to really uh, have community in our surrounding counties in this enjoyed fight to really reduce the major, major harm that is being done um, across spans, spans of uh, counties and states. Um, and so uh, Schumer noted that, you know, a quote, this will save lives in Sullivan County and across the Hudson Valley. Um, so very big deal. Uh, try to keep our eye on um, what exactly uh, Sullivan County will be receiving, um, whether that's monetary assistance or communications, um, see what offices are being communicated with now, um, maybe what amount of monies uh, the county might be seeing to help fight this, um, possibly um, greater connections to um, the district attorney's office in their um, you know, offense on the street level uh, against um, a lot of um, the illegal substance use um, and opioid use uh, that has been seen just uh, ravaging the county and our surrounding neighbors. Um, so very, very big deal. Looking forward to seeing exactly how this designation will push Sullivan County in hopefully the right direction moving forward. Definitely, definitely. We, we definitely hope that it, it will move uh, in the right direction uh, when dealing with this opioid crisis that we have here. Uh, Derek, let's move on to another story you have uh, coming out from the Sullivan County government. There is a report. We can tell us about this report that came out from the county. And I understand you had an interview with Josh Potostic, the county manager. Yeah, Joshua Potosik, uh, he recently put out his um, July and August newsletter um, with uh, some pretty good indications of a lot of job growth um, in Sullivan County going on, um, obviously not just in the past two months, um, but over the past year, um, which mainly focused on the tourism, hospitality, and leisure um, industries that have you know taken a rise in Sullivan County as one of our, if not our main leading, um, you know, sources of income and economy for the county. Um, he noted that, uh, that according to his data collection from the New York State Department of Labor, uh, Sullivan County leads the entire state in job growth. Um, so, you know, we're making, you know, in, in combination to go back to the former story that I was talking about, um, you know, uh, combining our, our new, um, 
access tools to fight, you know, the um the negatives that the county is facing. We are also seeing a lot of positive in job growth. Um, so that is um, very exciting uh, for uh, you know residents and tourists alike to have be able to come together to see Sullivan County become something much stronger. Um, he did note, uh, you know, on a on a more sour side that the county, um, uh, you know, um, will uh, be seeing some negative impacts in its revenue due to some new measures being taken by New York, the New York State uh, leaders, um, including um, due to an each increased pay rate for assigned legal counsel. Uh, so that'd be like lawyers assigned to defendants who cannot personally afford one, but are const uh, constitutionally entitled to one. Um, Medicaid monies being withheld by, at the state level and municipalities not being able to keep a uh, certain number of profits from tax floor closure, for, excuse me, foreclosure sales uh, anymore. Um, and Podesek did note uh, that these reasons might to tend to lean, uh, have an estimated impact from of loss between four million to five a year, um, but on the local side, still keeping up with the positive. Uh, he did note um, that uh, the county's uh, budget uh, will no uh, no longer relies on heavy property taxes, um, and looking into the future, um, there's a possibility of maintaining a potential zero percent increase in land taxes in 2024. Um, so, um, you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of positive, some sour coming from, uh, uh, County manager, Josh Podesek's, um, news report. Um, but you know, we're look we're hoping for that the trend of job growth increases, um, and that we can, uh, continual continually try to beef up our economy and provide, you know, a lot of, um, you know, tax relief for uh tiny residents who you know spent their lives building up the county and um as well as the tourists who want to come and 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 spend their time and their money here so um, yeah interesting report coming from the county manager's office definitely definitely we're talking to derek kurt from the Sullivan county democrat next up we have philip pontuso from the times union uh philip we had these Torrential rains. We had this uh, horrible weather uh, last week with the rains. Uh, affected us here in Sullivan County. We had some flash flood sites, but it mainly affected Orange County. Uh, I was saying, not I should say witness, but I should say I've been looking at photos and videos of the damage there. Roads washed out, businesses flooded, homes flooded. Um, you are reporting that uh, now there is some money coming from Albany to help some of the families down in Orange County. What can you tell us? Yeah, so this was an announcement that Governor Kathy Hochul made on Tuesday uh, down in the village of Highland Falls in Orange County, which was um, kind of where the most devastation was, at least in, in the Hudson Valley. And um, she announced that the state's Division of Housing and Community Renewal is going to make $3 million in recovery aid, recovery aid available to homeowners in Orange County. Um, and that in Orange County bit is important because at this point, that aid is only available to homeowners whose primary residence lives or is in Orange County and, um, you know, meets certain income thresholds. Um, they must make at or below 80% of the area median income. And what they'll do basically is they'll apply for individual grants up to $50,000 that can cover emergency repairs, 
Um, and those grants are going to be overseen by the Rural Development Advisory Corporation. Um, you know, this is a bit of a mixed bag, I think, or that's at least how locals received it. Obviously, you know, $3 million is better than no dollars, but the estimates for the, the total damage uh, from the flooding have been something like $50 million. Um, so this doesn't really do a ton to, toward the full scope of recovery. Um, you know, local, local officials in Orange County, federal officials in Congress and in the Senate have called for FEMA to declare uh, a major disaster declaration. That hasn't happened yet as of Wednesday afternoon when we're speaking. Um, that would open up a lot of federal money for, for storm repair here. Um, you know, it kind of remains to be seen if, if that will happen. Um, it's It hasn't yet. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the holdup is. Um, as far as we've been able to tell, I'm not sure if FEMA's even been on the ground in Orange County yet. Um, of course, they, they have, would have had a lot of other places to respond to, um, not only for their upstate, but Vermont, which was quite badly hit by the same storm system. So, you know, $3 million uh, in grants, um, I, I think it'll it'll help some homeowners, but certainly not everybody. What are some of the eligibility requirements for homeowners to qualify for the storm recovery grants in Orange County? Because like I said, the, the photos and videos I've seen is just devastating the damage that the weather has done there. Yeah, the, the two main ones are that um, the homeowner's primary residence has to be in Orange County. So it can't be like a secondary home or a vacation home. And um, they must make at or below 80% of the area median income. So it's targeted more at, at homeowners uh, who are, you know, probably lower middle class or, or below that. Um, which are the people who are going to need the most help, certainly. But um, as as Hochul herself pointed out, and and as Orange County Executive Steve Newhouse also said, a lot of homeowners, even ones who make above eighty percent of the area median income, didn't have flood insurance because why would you think you would need flood insurance in the Hudson Valley necessarily? Um, so, and of course, you know the damage to some of these places is is pretty severe. So even if you make above that income threshold, I would imagine that um, if you lived in Highland Falls or any of the places that were more badly hit, um, you're going to be struggling to pay for the repairs, um, at least until or unless further assistance comes in. Absolutely. You said it's with devastating damage there in Orange County, so any help I'm sure will be uh, welcome. So you have an interesting story that I, I was sort of curious about. Uh, you have a Marble Town supervisor uh, who followed a 17-year-old speeding kid in a car home, and they got into some scuffle uh, in front of their house. What can you tell us about this story? Yeah, so there are... I'll, I'll tell you what we know, which is not everything. <laughs> uh, much of this is still in dispute, including who started this situation and, and who should pay damages for it. Um, so this story was first reported in some of the local media a couple of weeks ago. Um, but we really only got one side of the story at that point. What had happened was um, a family, the Underwoods, uh, who live in Stone Ridge, um, filed um, in Ulster County Court what's called uh, uh, an intent to sue. And basically, they said that 
by um, sometime this month, by a deadline later this month, they uh, might file a lawsuit against the marble against the town of Marble Town itself because um, the town supervisor, Rich Peretti, had followed their 17-year-old son home, and they alleged um, assaulted him. Um, so that's kind of all we heard for a couple of weeks. Um, our reporter, who covered, one of our freelance reporters who covers Ulster County, uh, Susan Farkas, started digging into the story and found that it's quite a bit more complicated than that. Um, nobody, let's start with what isn't disputed. Um, the 17-year-old uh, Underwood Sr., who we chose not to name in the story because he has not been charged with a crime, at least not yet. Um, he was speeding on a road, um, in, heading home, I think, um, to Stone Ridge, going through Marble Town quite, quite fast. Um, while, while he was speeding, he whizzed by the Marble Town supervisor, Rich Peretti, who was outside talking to a neighbor. Peretti recognized the, the kid who was driving, jumped into his car, followed him home, and in the driveway or in the yard of the kid's home, some type of scuffle ensued. Now, there's various accusations about who started it. Um, Peretti, the supervisor, says that he came up to the window and that the kid rolled down the window and started punching him. Uh, the kid and, and his family say that Peretti was tackling uh, the kid. And Peretti, it should be noted, was a star wrestler in, in high school. Regardless, the kid ended up with two broken bones in his hand. And uh, Peretti ended up with a broken taillight that the kid had kicked. Susan Farkas, our, our, the aforementioned reporter, she started digging into this um, and found that that this kid had been, the, the kid and his father, um, Nathan Underwood, had been sued previously by two passengers in a vehicle that the kid was driving when he attempted to, he, he basically made a dangerous uh, pass on a curvy road, didn't negotiate the curve, crashed a car into a tree. Um, the kid, his younger brother, and the two passengers jumped out of the car and the car exploded into flames. The two other non-related passengers sued the kid and the father for damages. One of those was settled. One of those is still uh, on the litigation is still ongoing. As part of that litigation, um, the fact that this kid has multiple other speeding tickets and traffic violations emerged and he admitted and um this this which came up in in discovery that he had uh been speeding with while still driving on a learn, learner's permit his father took away his license but he still was driving and he posted several videos on social media one of which is in our story of him one of them shows him swerving all over a snowy road one of them shows him shows him going uh 107 miles an hour on like a state highway not even the throughway not that 107 miles an hour is the speed limit on the throughway either and another shows him um passing like crossing a double line and passing i think up to three cars um and almost running another car off the road in order to get back on the car what else we were able to turn up is that each of those prior violations had been negotiated down somehow, uh, to non-moving tickets. Um, this might be a good time to note that the kid's um, parents 
run uh, a, a rather successful international floral design business. Uh, I think are quite wealthy, and um, the the allegation from the attorney for the town supervisor is that um, the the parents are basically pulling strings and and kind of shielding their kid from liability. Attorney for the supervisor last week filed a lawsuit against um, Nathan Underwood, the father, and his son in Ulster County Court alleging that the supervisor had sustained injuries and was otherwise damaged, although they wouldn't tell us what those injuries were. Uh, as I mentioned previously, the, the family had filed an intent to sue against the supervisor last month, but haven't actually filed a lawsuit yet um, as, of, as of Wednesday afternoon when we're speaking. So it's, it's a really messy situation. Um, on the one hand, it certainly seems like there's a, a history of... Um, there's a history of... of driving behavior by by this minor that calls into question, I think, the Underwoods side of the story. On the other, you don't exactly want to see an elected official following uh, a, uh, a minor home and getting into some kind of fracas, whatever happened that ended up with, with broken bones in the kid's hand. Uh, it's a real lose-lose situation, but it, it's, it's kind of a, a wild story um, and one that I think will have further twists and turns. Uh, as these various legal actions play out. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out uh, for this, this particular scenario. There's a very uh, interesting story, to say the least. You have another story that's sort of close to home here uh, in Sullivan County, because I believe in, in our area in Sullivan County, Orange County has experienced this. There is, is a um, freshman's uh Absentee voter decision came down. This uh, town uh, was had some um, uh, absentees for the last voting uh, round. Uh, they were in question. Yeah, this is another pretty complicated story emerging from the fine court system of New York State. Um, so uh, uh, earlier this year, um, some candidates for village trustee and mayor in the village of Fleischmann's had challenged absentee ballots uh, that were um, filed by absentee voters in the village of Fleischmann's, basically all in favor of candidates who were supported by the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community there. And what these people were claiming is that um, the candidates had benefited from what they called an illegally orchestrated voter, voter registration drive led by ultra-Orthodox leaders. Um, almost all of these absentee ballot registrations were um, from Orthodox um, Jewish people who uh, do not have a primary residence in the village of Fleischmann's. Most of them live in Brooklyn. Some of them live in the town of Monroe or, or the town of Monsey or the village of Monsey. Um, of course, according to New York state law, you can vote wherever you have a residence. You don't have to vote you know, you obviously can only vote once, but you don't have to vote where your primary residence is. Um, and uh, these candidates were basically, these candidates, all of whom lost their races, were basically saying they lost because of this voter registration campaign. They were challenging 112 votes and the village of Fleischmann's has about 300 full-time residents. So it's a, it's a determinative <laughs> chunk of the electorate. Um, uh, an appellate court um, a couple of weeks ago um, denied that petition, and in fact, they you know it's it's the second time that that this kind of challenge has happened. Um, it echoed one that was filed a year earlier 
by a different mayoral candidate and other village candidates um, that alleged a similar voter registration drive led to the victories of two other candidates for for village trustee. So um, the challenge from twenty to, from earlier this year um, ended up before uh, uh, a a judge who had ordered the absentee ballots to be counted. And in his ruling, he noted that the State Court of Appeals had long ago allowed people with dual residencies to vote from either residence. The petitioners appealed that decision. And last month, the Appellate Division's third department issued a decision. It basically didn't express an opinion on the merits of the residency issue and said it didn't have jurisdiction to make a decision about their registrations, which is what the respondents um, were saying. Basically, they were like, voter registrations are the jurisdiction of board of elections out of the courts and so essentially they had stayed what the state supreme court said which was that these ballots must be counted um the 2022 decision um was pretty similar it was it, it came before the same judge and rather than uh issue a decision in that case he actually just dismissed that lawsuit declaring that the argument to have the candidates who were being challenged removed was moot because that can only be done by the state attorney general. He wrote that the court notes the petitioner's allegations of election fraud are serious in nature and does not lightly dismiss their petition, but he didn't actually, you know, take it up. So um, the attorney for the Fleischmann's uh, candidates uh, who's providing his services pro bono he told our Lana Bellamy that he may put forward a constitutional challenge, but that at this point, you know, he's he's sort of exhausted the appeals process here in the state of New York. And he got, he told her that there's kind of few options for further recourse at this point. What he called for is uh, the politicians in Albany to close loopholes in election law that allow for voters to register like um, so close to Election Day. Uh, in the kind of short period that allows for those to be challenged. Um, it's, I think it's worth noting here that these these weren't challenged until after the two-week period uh, that the state allows for voter registrations to be challenged. Um, so he called it a game of whack-a-mole. Uh, but, you, you know, as you mentioned before we started recording, that you've seen kind of similar things happen in, in sort of vacation and summer communities. Um, kind of all throughout the, the lower Hudson Valley and Catskills. And this is just another example of that. Yeah, definitely keeps us updated data on what, what else happens, uh, comes out of it, if, if anything. Uh, let's talk about another story that's been worked on in, uh, in a couple of weeks ago, I should say last week when this we are recording this, uh, by Phoebe, uh, who is a reporter for the Times Union, also reports on public radio, in a partnership with a Google grant, has we all come together, uh, Times Union and Radio Catskill, and looking into rural housing. And Phoebe has a story about evictions in Sullivan County. And for those who have not heard it yet, you can check our website, wjffradio.org, and you can see the story there on evictions in Sullivan County. Uh, Philip, what can you tell us about this story? Yeah, yeah. I'm, listeners would, would have heard this on uh, the local edition last week. Um, so I can I'll keep it fairly brief, but um, yeah, this was this was a story that um, kind of emerged out of a partnership, uh, Phoebe T Taylor of Willow, um, 
there's the there's the radio version that aired on local edition and then we ran a print version on monday in the times union it's basically looking at uh, a troubling trend really across the state but looking at through a local lens so since the eviction moratorium in new york expired last year evictions have risen statewide um but in a lot of rural counties those rates are higher than they were before the moratorium and there's a number of reasons for that probably number one of which is just a backlog of eviction notices but you know as as radio Catskills chronicled as the times union has chronicled there have also been pretty severe affordable housing issues in the Catskills and in the hudson valley and that's really putting pressure on rural communities in particular that don't have the housing infrastructure to deal with um, to deal with the influx of new residents, or have the kind of administrative capacity to even process uh, like these cases. Um, so she was looking at the rates in Sullivan County, um, and, and she pulled a couple of of figures that I think are are worth looking at. So. In 2019, evictions affected 5.8% of rental households in Sullivan County. That dropped down to just over 1% um, during the two years that the moratorium was in place. And last year, eviction filing shot back up to over 8.3%. So that's, you know, almost 50% increase over what it was just in 2019. Um, John Little, the Sullivan County's Commissioner for Health and Human Services, called it... uh, Called the housing situation in Sullivan County chaotic. Um, what he what he told Phoebe is that the problem is that there isn't much middle to upper income housing, and there's limited housing stock in um, in the county. Um, so the story basically looks at sort of what like some of the numbers behind the surge, um, how much the county is spending on emergency housing. It spent 1.6 million last year to house um, to house people who had been evicted or who otherwise don't have shelter. That's three times as much as it spent five years ago. Um, and looked at some of the kind of structural issues in place. Um, and I think you know, as as we've noted, this is the first in a series on um, rural uh, on housing issues in rural upstate communities that we're going to be doing as part of this partnership and. We'll be looking at some other places in the Catskills in future iterations and hopefully some solutions as well. Absolutely. You've been listening to these Reporters Roundtable on WJFF Radio Catskill. I've been your host, Patricia Robayo. Today, I was joined with Liam Mayo, other River Reporter, Chris Rowley from the Schwankuk Journal, Derek Kurt from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pontuso from the Times Union. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, joining me on this program. Uh, and we'll talk to you again next month. Take care.